if we study human history, we find that um, with, for various motives, human beings have sought knowledge in different ways. Uh, I mean, some knowledge is required just for survival. Even animals have to have some knowledge, for example, where they can get water, where they can get food, or what other creatures are dangerous, which are benign, and so on and so forth. So we live in a world, if you think about it, in which uh, people operate through consciousness. And so um, if we study human history um, without wanting to necessarily confine this to a particular chronological sequence, we can see that there are different stages of, um, you could say, economic development, and by economic development, this is kind of a little Marxist. I think Marx was very intelligent and very crazy. But um, but one thing which I think he got right um, was that, as a historian, not as a prophet, is that if you study different ways in which human beings satisfy their basic needs for food, shelter, um, and so on, and so forth, that uh, the way in which human beings achieve this tends to determine their social and political relationships. I mean, survival generally is job one. I mean, among any creatures, if you are assured your survival, you're not starving, you're not in immediate physical danger, and so on, then you have the luxury of thinking about other things. But in communities in which that's not the case, since survival is essential, because if you don't survive, you really can't do anything else. And so therefore, um, the ways in which people survive, they tend to create social and political structures which ensure their survival, and therefore the means of survival naturally, dramatically affects the ways in which they govern themselves and uh, in the ways in which they relate to each other. So just to, to give a very simple example, this is a little uh, theoretical. Uh, let's say at a very, very simple level, there are hunting and gathering societies. Uh, and, uh, well, remarkably enough, they hunt and gather, which is actually related to their name, as hunting and gathering societies. So, but it's, it's the nature of hunting and gathering that you cannot hunt a lot in the same place. You can't bring 20,000 people into a valley and hunt for obvious reasons, because most of the people will starve. And if you're gathering, gleaning, you know, nuts or berries or whatever you're taking from the environment, uh, in a simple society, uh, you can't move that far in a single day. And so therefore, necessarily, communities have to be very small. Hunting and gathering communities have to be small, or if they try to get bigger, they'll starve and end up small again anyway. And so when you have small societies, it's the nature of small societies that life is somewhat precarious and uh, you don't have a lot of social structure because let's say you go out with 12 of your friends and someone says, well, first we have to elect officers. That's kind of stupid because if there's only like seven or 12 of you, you don't start electing officers and okay, well, I'll represent this. I'll be the delegate you know, for, for this constituency and so on. And so then you have what's called, I mean, you may wonder what this has to do with the topic, but it... Uh, it's a scenic route, but we'll get there. And no refund, so... Anyway, so... What, what historians 
all agree on really changed everything is what they call the agrarian revolution. That when people realize that you can do agriculture, you can produce grains, the nature of grains is unlike, let's say, meat that you get by hunting. Other things, you can actually store them in large quantities. Grains can be produced and stored in large quantities. So when people start farming, you start to have cities. You start to have large-scale societies. One uh, result of this is that you start to get a division of labor. This is, of course, Sociology 1A. That, for example, in a large-scale society, because some people produce a large amount of food which can feed everyone, some people can just do nothing but art. They can do art, or they can write literature, or they can be warriors, or they can, you know, trade. They can devote themselves to commerce. So you start to get large-scale societies, specialization with specialization becomes expertise, and so on and so forth. So I mean, we go on to the you know the further things. We can talk about the industrial revolution and post-industrial society and post-sanity, which is kind of where we are now. But but for now, if you just take it back to this agrarian state, which really goes back thousands of years, certainly in Europe. And so at that point, uh, you start to get a dramatic increase in the knowledge options. That's why I brought all this up, because you can actually have people who simply devote themselves to knowledge. Uh, and someone else is going to produce the food they need. There's going to be a warrior class that protects them. And so they can actually just study, teach, learn, discover, and so on. So we have a privilege in a sense because we are not in a hunting-gathering society. Uh, we are actually in a post-agrarian society. Therefore, we actually have the privilege of uh, devoting ourselves to knowledge, or at least taking advantage of people that devote themselves to knowledge. So then the issue comes up, what kinds of knowledge are there? And knowledge has an object. You know, I mean, the verb know is a transitive verb. It, that means it, it has an object. You know something. So uh, grammatically, you know something. And so what are the different kinds of things you can know and how can you know them? What are the various processes? For example, if you are engaged in biology, there's one way to know. If you're an art critic, there may be another way. I won't make any snide remarks about art critics. But anyway, if you're trying to understand the source of everything, is there a God? Is there not a God? If there is a God, what would be the nature of God? So... There are different ways to, to, to pursue these different objects of knowledge. And I should also point out that um, there is a vital relationship between what you seek to know and the methodology you adopt. For example, if you, if you want to know what temperature it is right now, you might use a thermometer. If you want to weigh yourself, you can't weigh yourself with a thermometer. Or if you want to, I mean, and, and so on and so forth. If you're trying to, let's say, understand the topography of Florida, then you could just read, I don't know, Renaissance poetry, but that probably wouldn't help you because I don't think any Renaissance poets even knew there was a Florida. So every time you try to know something, you have to select a particular way to know it. So... Uh, the topic here is revelation and um, human reason. 
Now, these are not actually um, opposites. There are obviously differences between knowing by revelation and knowing by reason, but they're not always different. For example, let's say you want to become a doctor and you, uh, you have to study medicine. You can't reinvent the wheel. You can't pretend that no one ever discovered anything about medicine and just start over. And so if you're going to, if you're pre-med or, or in medical school, then basically a huge, I would say, you know, majority of everything you're memorizing and being tested on is being revealed to you. Someone is telling you, a book or a professor is telling you that we now know this or we now know that. And of course, at first you take this on faith. At first you take this on faith because uh, you can't verify everything. There's, you don't have enough time. You would die long before you could verify even a tiny microscopic percentage of all that is claimed to be known in the field of medicine. So rationally, you make a rational decision that rather than pretend that no one knows anything and I have to rediscover everything or discover everything, you actually take on faith what some books tell you and, uh, and what some professors tell you. So you make a rational decision to accept a revelation. I mean, the word revelation in English usually conjures up some type of mystical or religious image. But that's not really the essence of the word. The word revelation simply means that someone tells you something and you believe that person is telling you the truth and hopefully that belief will be confirmed by practical experience. I mean, to give a very... For example, let, let's say you're studying, I don't know, Indonesia. And you learn about, you know, the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta, there's all these islands and has this kind of government and that kind of economy and this is the history and so on. And then maybe you, you, you go there and you discover that what you learned is true or some things are not true. I know I was, uh, I did my graduate work at Harvard and, um, and so, you know, they tell you a lot of things. I was particularly in a field, Indology, study of India, I was in a particular field where uh, there's a lot of guesswork going on. And so when you're an undergraduate, you get kind of like this clean, sort of shrink-wrapped little package where we know this, we know that, we know the other things. When you get to graduate school, you realize that a lot of the things you were told as an undergraduate may not be true or people don't really know that. For example, if you take a typical course in the history of India. Actually, I taught that course here at UF. But anyway, if, if you take a course in, um, in India or, or Indian religion, you find out that the oldest texts in, 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 in India, perhaps the oldest books in, in the world, are the Vedas, the original four Vedas, and that we know they were written about uh, these very sophisticated books, and they'll tell you they were written perhaps uh, or not written, actually, composed, because it was an oral tradition before it was written, but perhaps 1,500 years ago. And then when you go to graduate school, you find out where that number 1,500 comes from, and it turns out to be bordering on absurdity. And the real fact is, they don't actually know. They actually don't know how old the Vedas are, but they say they know. And, and so I'll give you one simple example. 
Uh, and then I want to get more to just pure epistemology, which is like, you know, philosophy of knowledge. Uh, for several years, I was on an, I don't know, a discussion group. I don't know what you guys call it. It's internet conference, academic discussion group or whatever. Anyway, it was a, it, it's the most important uh, academic uh, discussion group of Indology, Sanskrit in the world, and all the best scholars from all the best universities are there. And so one thing you'll always learn if you, uh, I was going to say, um, if you take a course, let's say, on the history of, of Indian religion, you'll, they'll always tell you that uh, the Bhagavad Gita was, was composed after Buddhism. The Buddhism is older. Buddhism, approximately 2,500 years ago, the Bhagavad Gita was composed after Buddhism, and therefore it's, you know, who knows, maybe 2,000 years ago, give or take a few centuries. Now, the reason they always give is that in the Bhagavad Gita, actually five times, you'll find the Sanskrit phrase Brahma Nirvana. The Sanskrit word Nirvana, uh, Vana comes from a root which means to flow, like a current. And so Vana uh, has the sense of the current of reincarnation, birth and death. Like now here we are in Gainesville, Florida, and... uh, and then, you know, sooner or later our bodies, it's very likely our bodies will decease, you know, they'll die. And then you, the real person, the soul, you'll go into another body. And so this is a current of birth and death, also called samsara. And so, um, so vana is this current in this word nirvana. Because the Buddhists were also very concerned with... Uh, reincarnation and birth and death and it's ironic because although they said there's no or some of them actually uh, people's idea of what Buddhism was or is is, is very um, imaginative the actual history of Buddhism is, is very different than most people think and what Buddhists actually believed and so on but that go into that later so because the Buddhists were super concerned about they didn't want to just have to keep taking birth and dying in the material world and so they wanted release from that. Of course, if there's no self, then you're not taking birth or dying in any way. And they were very concerned, for example, in Asia in general, there's a lot of concern with your ancestors. Like in China, for example, your last name comes first, then your first name. Because your first identity is your family. And so, in general, whether it's India or China or Japan, there's always been this much more concern, I think, than in the West with your ancestors and taking care of your ancestors. And where are they now? Do they need my help? And so on. And so Buddhist monks, we know uh, that Buddhist monks were very concerned about their ancestors, but of course, if there is no self, then there are no ancestors. And you're not a person anyway. I mean, you, there is no you. And yet they're very concerned with karma. So, anyway. So, I mean, there, I mean, there are philosophical contradictions galore here, and I've just scratched the surface. But in any case... Uh, so nirvana, nir is a Sanskrit prefix meaning not or without. And so nirvana means without vana. And so without this flow of birth and death to escape this problem of karma and reincarnation. So the Bhagavad Gita, five times, I think in chapter five, uh, uses the term brahma nirvana, brahma meaning the absolute truth. Uh, and this word Brahma comes from a Sanskrit root, Bri, B-R, vowel R-H, 
which means to grow great. So the greatest is Brahman. So it means that you, it's not simply negative. Nirvana is grammatically a negative word. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It's just grammatically negative because it means without something. Like if you say, I am penniless, that's a negative word. It means you have no pennies. So, Brahma Nirvana means you not only transcend birth and death, you not only become free of vana, this flowing of birth and death, but you also ascend to an absolute realm where you can really have a good time as a pure spiritual being, as an eternal being. So now, because Buddhists, Buddhism, which began in India, the word Buddha is, of course, a Sanskrit word. And um, it began in India... And the word nirvana was prominent in Buddhist philosophy. And so because the same word nirvana appears in the Bhagavad Gita, they said, well, the Bhagavad Gita must have taken it from Buddhism. Therefore, Bhagavad Gita postdates Buddhism. Buddhism began about 2,500 years ago, give a century or two for it really to spread out and for its uh, terminology to become very well known all over South Asia. And hence, we can date the Gita. Now, on this Indology conference, which is, again, you know, it's rated number one, uh, AP, UPI, it, it's the number one Indology conference. So I asked a simple question. I, I said there are, th- there are three logical possibilities here. One is that the Bhagavad Gita, is this on? Yes. The Bhagavad Gita got the word nirvana from Buddhism. Another possibility is Buddhism got the word nirvana from the Bhagavad Gita. A third possibility is they both just use the word independently. And so I said, what hard evidence do we have, real evidence, that Bhagavad Gita got it from Buddhism? Again, I asked this question on the top academic Indology conference in the world, and no one could answer Everyone was teaching that, and no one knew why. Which I thought was very interesting. I just told you that to encourage you to change your major to Indology. Anyway, so, so, so getting to the topic of revelation, the idea that, I mean, I mean technically, there, the, the ways you can get knowledge are uh, empirically, But you see, even empiricism is based on revelation, which I'll explain. I'm purposely making, you know, shocking statements. (laughs) So the way that empiricism is based on revelation is obvious, because as the philosopher Descartes pointed out, um, I'm sorry, Aristotle. As Aristotle pointed out, uh, whatever you claim to be true, whatever you claim to be true, someone can say, prove it. And when you supply a proof, they can say, prove that. The example I've been giving so long that I I can hardly stand to hear myself say it again. But let's say, for example, someone claims that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And you say, prove it. So they put a pot of water on the stove with a thermometer. It boils 100 degrees. You say, I don't believe that's pure water. I want to test that water. And I want to test the mercury in the thermometer. So the person tests it. Look, you say, well, I don't believe that's real water testing stuff. So we have to test the water testing chemicals. Then we got to test the chemicals that test the water. And so 
you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. Anything, whatever you claim to be true. Someone could say, well, how do you know that? Well, I know it because of this. Well, how do you know this? Well, I know it because of that. So Aristotle was saying that uh, we really do know certain things. So logically, how do we know things if we can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs? And his answer was, Aristotle, the father of modern logic, um, that there are some things which we claim are self-evident. They prove themselves. Just like it said, you can't hold a candle to the sun. Let's say the sun is in the sky. Let us say that you, your body is functioning normally so that you can see the sun in the sky. And you don't, you can't, you can't prove the sun is in the sky by some other means. You see it. You can't hold a candle to it. You can't flash a light on it. And so the sun proves itself to you. Now, to make, to extrapolate or, 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 or to restate this in a much bigger way, if you're an empirical scientist, if you're an empirical scientist, you assume, but cannot prove, that there's a real physical world outside your mind. You can't prove that empirically. You can't say, look, of course there's a real physical world. This is, here's a real cup of water. But this is a real cup of water only if there's a real physical world. That's called circular reasoning or begging the question, a phrase which is almost universally misused nowadays, like you'll see on the news. Well, actually, this happened, so that begs the question, meaning that leads to the question. But I think the original meaning of beg the question is pretty much going down in flames in our culture because... Virtually everyone uses it in a different way now. But in any case, circular reasoning means, I mean, if you take the most simple form of logic that, you know, the one that's been taught for thousands of years, premise one, uh, all men are mortal. God, that is sexist, isn't it? Okay. Okay, I'm going to back up. Premise one, all human beings are mortal. Premise two, let's say Sally is a human being. Conclusion, Sally is mortal. Now, if it's true that all human beings are mortal, and if it's true that Sally is a human being, if those two premises are true, then the conclusion must be true, just by simple logic. So, um, but if I say, for example... Uh, if I say um, Sally is mortal therefore Sally is mortal you can't do that because if, if I'm trying to prove the point that Sally is mortal I can't give as evidence that Sally is mortal or I can't say Sally died therefore Sally is mortal so, so if I say this is a real cup of water this can only be a real cup of water if there's a real physical world and I'm trying to prove there's a real physical world, so the reality of this cup of water as something physically existing outside my mind depends on there being a real physical world. And therefore I can't use this as proof of it. So, why do we accept there's a real physical world outside our mind? Uh, Descartes gave the example that, he said, what if, for example, right now, let's say you believe you're in Gainesville, Florida. You believe you're sitting and listening to a person talk. So what if it's the case that you are actually a brain 
in the laboratory of an evil genius, this is Descartes' example, who is playing with your brain and making you think that there even is such a thing as Florida. What if there is no such thing as Florida, much less the University of Florida? And what if the body you think you have is just something you've been programmed to think? And really, you're just a brain, or in modern philosophers call it the brain in the vat. Somehow, I don't know why they had to change our Descartes thing. But so, so why do we believe there's a real physical world? Why do you believe that? Okay, because, I would argue, that the world presents itself to you in such a way that you can't doubt it. It is self-evident to you. It's the quality of your experience. For example, we, we, we all, everyone here has had the experience of going to sleep at night and dreaming. And when you wake up, there are two conclusions you can come to. Number one, I was just in the real world and now I'm dreaming. Or number two, I was dreaming and now I woke up. So basically everyone concludes that I was dreaming now. I woke up. Why? Why do you believe that? It's not for nothing. You believe it because the quality of the experience when you wake up is such. The nature, the quality of the experience is such that it proves itself to you that this is a higher state of reality than my dream. So, in order to be an empirical scientist, you must accept as revealed to you, and something doesn't have to be revealed by a god, it can just be revealed by nature. So really, what is undergirding the foundation of empirical science is a revelation, something that just presents itself to consciousness that there's a real physical world outside my mind. And in fact, if you study every field of knowledge, it's always based on a self-evident foundation. In epistemology, which is the philosophy of knowledge, um, this is called foundationalism. And there's another epistemological approach, which is called coherentism. I'm bringing these up because I'm going to go to Krishna consciousness and examine what we're doing here in light of these basically universal epistemological principles. So coherentism means that if you present some kind of knowledge, system of knowledge or something, uh, it has to be coherent. For example, if you're in a geography class and your teacher tells you that, uh, let's say, that, that this city is north of that city, let's say in Belarus, and the next day says the opposite, that this city is south of that city, that's incoherent. So either the earth changed while you were sleeping or the teacher made a mistake. And so things not only, the things have to be consistent, they have to be coherent. So if we look at Krishna consciousness, the fine product that we are <laughs> offering here, if you look at Krishna consciousness, uh, the reason that I personally, I, I began my practice of bhakti yoga in 1969. Oh my God, I'm dating myself. I was very young, like incredibly young. But in 1969, in Berkeley, I was a student in Berkeley. I was involved in the whole so-called revolutionary thing. Actually, my brother and I, my older brother, was all student there, and we, our picture came out on the front page of the Oakland Tribune in the middle of some riot. So, you know, I actually have empirical evidence that I was there. So, 
Um, so I did certain things. Actually, I first began to learn about Krishna consciousness when I went home to L.A. for the summer. And um, I was like the Vedic graduate or something, you know, Berkeley to L.A. So um, when I engaged in these bhakti yoga processes, chanting, reading, I had experiences which self-evidently, to me, were of a higher order of reality. It's not that when I chanted Hare Krishna, I thought, oh my God, my whole life I thought San Francisco was north of L.A., but actually, no. I mean, it, 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 it's not that I had a different idea of the physical world. Or it's not that I stopped believing in mathematics or science or things like that. But it's that I experienced everything from a higher state of consciousness. In other words, what is it? For example, let's say, to give an example. Well, what I want to say here is that the world is teleological. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The Greek word telos means a purpose or a goal. So teleology, in the sense that I'm using it, is the notion that uh, the world, or your life, has an objective purpose. So, for example, you can create a purpose for yourself. You can say, well, tonight I want to have a pizza. So that has become your purpose. You know, come hell or high water, you're going to find a pizza. But you could just decide, well, no, actually... What? My, my up. Oh, up? Oh, sure. Oh, sorry. How's that? I feel more powerful now. So... <laughs> So let's say, for example, you can, you can obviously change your purpose. You can say, well, no, actually, I don't want a pizza anymore. So those are subjective purposes. You can assign yourself and cancel out whenever you want purposes. But teleology is the idea, whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you accept it or not, there actually is an objective purpose to your life. So the question, why was I born, has an objective answer. And that if you don't understand that telos, if you don't understand the actual purpose of your life, you are basically uh, striking out in the great cosmic baseball game of life. And so, to give an example, I grew up on baseball, it's a big thing. Anyway, to give an example, well, I'll, I'll give the original example, I mean, where I kind of really saw the, uh, the importance of this distinction. Uh, Socrates, there's a Socratic dialogue, uh, actually written by Plato, Plato's the author, and it's called the Phaedo. It's the last day of Socrates' life. Socrates actually chose to uh, drink the hemlock and die uh, because of a concept he had of social contract obligations. He felt that by accepting all the benefits of the city of Athens, he had uh, de facto entered into a social contract with the city, and therefore he had to follow the city's laws. But anyway, so the last day of his life, he is philosophizing. He's sitting on a sort of a bed, kind of like what they use in India, it's kind of like a bed, but you can also sit on it and hold forth. And so he said, he's basically making a very powerful distinction 
between the word why and the word how. I mean, in loose English, they're kind of interchangeable, but in... <laughs> okay. But in, but in, in strict philosophical, in the kind of, let's say, uh, strict philosophical language I want to use here, they're different words. So, given a, so Socrates, Socrates says, I mean, Plato Socrates says, that if someone asks, why, you know, why is Socrates sitting here, in this room, and if someone says, well, he's sitting there because uh, his body's made in such a way that it bends at the joints, and, and you give a physical description of Socrates sitting, or an anatomical description, and Socrates says, no, that's how I'm sitting here. Why I'm sitting here is because uh, I chose to accept the decision of the Athenian court and die even though he could have actually escaped. So, uh, the question, so, I remember when I was a little kid, I heard something from my teacher, which in retrospect was kind of silly. And that is, the teacher said, we used to wonder why the sky is blue. We now know why the sky is blue. And then I got sort of a kiddie version of atmospheric science. Now, the big mistake that teacher made, and I'm not going to sue that teacher, but... The big mistake the teacher made was conflating and confusing two very different words. Why and how. For example, if I say to you, why are you at the program, and you say, I drove here, you didn't understand the question. If I say, how, you know, how are you at this program, or how did you come here, and you say, I, I was interested, you're just not understanding what the words mean. So here's another example. Let's say that you uh, see a beautiful work of art. And uh, let's say there is a beautiful work of art, something that kind of everyone agrees is great art. Now, simple question. Who has a deeper understanding of that work of art? It is, a, is it a paint chemist or a learned art historian? Now, according to the scientistic mode of thinking. Scientism is not science. Scientism is a word which means an exaggerated, irrational belief in the uh, exclusive and sufficient power of material means to understand reality. So, personally, I'm going to put my money on the art historian in the sense that I think that the paint chemistry is interesting to some people, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, if it's actually a great work of art, what the artist was thinking, what the artist was trying to convey, maybe what the artist conveyed unwittingly. I mean, just what's the historical context? What effect did this have on, on the artist's society? How do we see it now? To me, that's like really significant. And, and so what the artist intended, I, I'm not going to go postmodern on you because I think postmodernism is sort of a... Uh, very close to clinical insanity. But anyway... <laughs> Let's say the artist had a purpose. And, and, and so the purpose of the artist is very important. Paintings are teleological. People paint pictures. People compose music. People write books. People say things teleologically. So if the universe is teleological, it means there's actually a purpose to it, whether or not you recognize that. You were actually born to do something, whether or not you understand that. 
And so therefore, getting back to the topic of knowledge, you know, what is... Some people say that the most important thing to understand about... Oh, wire? Yeah. Someone my age cannot figure things like that out. I mean, literally, my life depended on it. So, so just as I think most people would agree that understanding the artist's purpose, the mean, meaning of a painting is in some ways more important than the chemistry because the chemistry is serving the telos, the purpose. The artist didn't paint the picture just to, I don't know, somehow promote the paint industry or something. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, people, I mean, just like take house painting, you know, a sort of an underrated skill. But it, I mean, let's say, for example, you go to a paint store, you want to paint your house, and there's all these different colors. And so you get all these scientists, they're actually art people, that's what they do for a living, you know, they, they create new kinds of house paint. But they're doing that so that people will find something they like because they want a beautiful house. The, the experience, and this is called phenomenology. There's actually a, uh, I think there's a philosophical link between teleology and phenomenology. Phenomenon means someone, it doesn't mean like, yeah, he's really a, a uh, soccer phenomenon. I mean, phenomenon philosophically means um, something you can actually perceive with your senses. Something which is perceptually, experientially available to you just by looking out at the world or listening. And so, if the world is ultimately teleological, in other words, if the world was made with a purpose, and the more we know about microbiology, the more absurd it is becoming to scientists that this almost like absurdly, inconceivably, technologically sophisticated thing called your body, which is like, you know, millions of times beyond computers, that it just kind of, you know, the, the, uh, it rained and there were fires, and there was tectonic shifting, and boom, you get these like supercomputers, you know, a million times more sophisticated than anything we can build. It just, you know, all, you, all it takes is sun shining, little rain, wind, dust blowing, little tectonic activity, and you get a supercomputer. I mean, I think you have to really be trying hard to be blind, to, to believe nonsense like that. So if it's, a, and, and again, Darwin, for example, was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying the, 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 the geological record. Sure, there are a lot of fossils in general, simpler ones are older more complex ones are, are younger, with some amazing anomalies, by the way. But, so we're not talking about the fossil record, we're talking about, you know, how did things get there? Which is very different, and which is actually not empirical science, since you can't observe it. It happened so long ago, you can't reproduce it, you can't observe it, and therefore, technically, it doesn't fall in the empirical realm. But that's another point. So, but if it's the case, if it's the case, that the universe is not bottom-up, it's top-down. If that's the case, then that means the question, simple question, why is the sky blue, has an answer, and the answer is not atmospheric science. Atmospheric science tells us how the sky is blue, not why it's blue. The question why, in, in the relevant sense that we're using the word, 
means why did someone make it blue? It was, and, and so ultimately it turns out to be an artistic decision and not the result of blind atmospheric science. It was kind of a... So, again, what is the most important kind of knowledge? Is it technical? Is it empirical? Is it philosophical? Is it theological? And last argument I'll make before I, you know, spend the rest of the night trying to get you to give me donations. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. But um, in, it's very easy to prove logically that physical science, which I like, by the way, I mean, I, I went to the dentist today. I thank God for science. Because, you know, if I had to go to a dentist 100 years ago, I might end my life or something before I went to a dentist hundred years ago. So I'm, I love science. Real science, I think it's great. I love it. I'm a big fan. And I'm grateful. I use it all the time. So this is not about science. This is not about science, but, um, but it's easy to prove. It's very easy to prove that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. That's easy. Because, for example, take our political system. And by bi-dimensional, by that I mean physical and metaphysical. We live in a country which is supposed to be democratic. We really kind of live in a plutocracy, you know, ruled by the rich. But let's call it a democracy now, you know, for now. Let's, let's still call it a democracy. And democracy is based on a powerful metaphysical assumption. Metaphysical, which is that we're equal. That we're equal. In fact, there's all kinds of social activity going on trying to uh, ensure or defend or recuperate or establish equality. Now, empirically, we are not equal. And never mind groups. I mean, I'm not going to talk about you know, racial, ethnic groups because, because anyway, to, to make the point simple and non-controversial, let's just talk about people. Personally, I, you know, let's just talk about people whatever they are, whatever kind of body they have, people. So we're not equal. For example, the University of Florida has become quite competitive in its admissions. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't. Now it is, for an obvious reason, because the state population has increased dramatically. They haven't built a lot of new universities, and therefore the, you know, it's like you get a much larger quantity of applicants being funneled into a, a, an opening which hasn't grown in ratio to the, anyway, the state. So, so it's competitive. I mean, Florida, University of Florida is known for its athletic program. It's a big deal, you know, the Gators and all that. So, in, I mean, you can't point to a single area of life in which people are equal. Not artistically, not athletically, not mathematically, not in terms of physical strength, not in terms of emotional sensitivity. There's not a single area of human life in which empirically, people are equal. Now it's interesting, if you look at the DOI, Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, with a little help from his friends, makes this like, you could say counterintuitive claim, which is, the, which is the whole basis of our political system. He says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, technical philosophical term, 
Self-evident. Technical philosophical term. Jefferson is a smart guy. And in some ways. And so he was also had, you know, he had his eye on David Hume, the Scottish skeptic. And and I won't go into the whole philosophical, cultural context in which Jefferson was writing this. But Jefferson claims that it is self-evident. In other words, it, it has the highest epistemic status, self-evident, that despite all the empirical evidence to the contrary, we're equal. So he subordinates all empirical evidence, physical evidence, to a metaphysical claim. Metaphysical, meta in Greek means beyond, after, so metaphysical. This was in the school of Aristotle, that which is beyond the physical. So, is this religion? That we create a whole political system, a social system, a cultural phenomenon based on something which is, frankly, empirical nonsense. It's empirical nonsense to say that we're equal. Yet, we believe it is not nonsense. So it's empirical nonsense, but it is not metaphysical nonsense. In fact, metaphysically, we know it at a deeper level than we know that we're not equal. Because in many ways we're not equal, I mean, practically in all ways, physically. So we have subordinated in democracy. I saw this great bumper sticker at Ohio University one time. It said that, uh, that was when they started the first Iraq war, W. And so it said, if you don't cooperate with America, we are going to bring democracy to your country. Because of punishment anyway, because it's America's track record. And so, um, so consider that. Now there are two possibilities here. Uh, number one, that equality is nonsense. Because according to physicalism, according to sort of, uh, you know, heavy philosophical materialism, which is still the official philosophy of science, although, although the hegemony is cracking more and more every day. Um, we were programmed, neurologically programmed, by the blind, unfeeling, uncaring forces of evolution to believe a fairy tale. The fairy tale is that we all deserve equal justice. Because if nothing is true but the physical, metaphysical ideas like equality, which is not an empirical idea, it's a metaphysical idea, obviously, it's just a neurologically programmed idea, programmed by blind evolution, because somehow or other, people that believe this fairy tale somehow acquired some type of reproductive advantage. So we are not equal. It's not bad to go into a school and shoot children. It's not bad to rape. It's not bad to steal. It's not bad. Genocide is not bad. We are simply genetically programmed by the blind forces of evolution to believe in a fairy tale. Now, if you find this as repugnant as I do, then you are committed strongly to the idea that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. 
a bi-dimensional universe in the sense that there are metaphysical facts, like it's bad to rape someone. It is morally reprehensible to kill an innocent person. It is uh, morally bad to deny people justice under a fair law. If you believe these things are real, you are committed. You are totally committed to the notion of a bi-dimensional universe. And if you don't believe these things, I mean, you probably should be arrested and put on an island somewhere. So, if we live in a bi-dimensional universe in which we elevate the metaphysical above the physical, as in democracy, as in equal rights and justice and all that, then it follows logically, ineluctably, a sadly neglected word, right? Ineluctably, in other words, inevitably, unavoidably. It follows that a physical science by its own ground rules, by its self-definitions, can never give a complete description of reality. And when I say it logically follows, or it's a logical truth, I, I, again, it, it's a somewhat technical epistemic idea. For example, let's say you'll never guess what I saw today. I saw three green unicorns in the duck pond. And so, that's, I mean, you're going to find that very hard to believe. But it's not logically impossible. Let me give you an example of something that's logically impossible. I mean, you'd have to go look for them. But let's say I saw, guess what I saw in the duck pond. I actually live over there, that's why I am. Oh, let's say I was walking on the, guess what I saw on the campus today? I saw a square circle. Now, no one has to go look to see if there's really a square circle, because if you know the meaning of the English word square, not the uh, kind of slang meaning of a square, but the geometric meaning. If you know what the word square means, and you know what the word circle means, you know that the statement, a square circle, is actually meaningless language. It doesn't mean anything. It can't exist because, because the words don't mean anything. And so it's logically impossible that there be now there can be paradoxical statements like the king is dead long live the king of course what people meant by that usually is the old king is dead but now the new king is alive so don't despair but if you mean the exact same person the king is dead the king is alive that's logically impossible unless it's some kind of sort of wannabe clever paradox well no what I meant by that is or but if, but if you really just mean it in a straightforward sense, the king is dead, the king is alive, sorry. We can logically rule it out. You cannot logically rule out that I saw three green unicorns. I mean, you can doubt my sanity and, and all that, and you can say, well, we've you know, scoured the city. And I can say, well, that's because the green unicorns, actually, I forgot to tell you, they fly. <laughs> and they are faster than the Incredible Flash. And so... But obviously, it's just nonsense. But what I mean to say is, I, I'm mentioning this because it is logically impossible, like a square circle, 
it is virtually logically impossible for empirical science to give a complete description of reality. Because its own ground rules forbid empirical science from, frankly, investigating metaphysical things metaphysically. Now, let's say, for example, I say, I chanted Hare Krishna, and I had an experience of God. And then someone comes along and says, well, actually, we can explain this neurologically. What, what was really going on is that in your brain, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, that's a pseudo-explanation, because all neurology can do is show correspondence, that when I'm having, when I, when I claim to have a spiritual experience, certain things are happening in my brain, and so when people in general claim to have those kinds of experiences, we can see a pattern where certain things tend to be happening in the brain. Correspondence is not causality. If you say that, and, and again, Hume, actually, he wasn't completely bad. I mean, he actually had some good ideas. So Hume was making this point that if, if A occurs and B occurs, and they tend to occur at the same time, and there seems to be a correspondence between their occurrences, you have not demonstrated causality. For example, what we would claim is that your body, your, your neurology, is actually conducting consciousness. Just like a wire conducts electricity, or this bulb is manifesting electricity. It would be simplistic indeed to say that light bulbs create light. No, they don't. They conduct it. They manifest it. And so your nervous system conducts consciousness and manifests it, and therefore there is an obvious, well, there's a, a correspondence between what's going on neurologically and different kinds of conscious experiences. But in any case, if you want to understand reality, if you want to understand the big picture, uh, empirical science, you know, they have their role to play, and they can do a good job, but uh, they have to stop what I call this uh, epistemological imperialism. It's like, we will explain everything. No, actually you won't. Actually you won't explain it. And so it, it's logically impossible, based on our self-evident experiences of metaphysical facts, it's logically impossible for science to explain everything. So getting back to revelation and, and human reason, I'm reasoning my way to these conclusions. So if I decide that, for example, I'm going to read Bhagavad Gita and, uh, and based on my experience certain things are true, or actually, it's all true, in the Bhagavad Gita, then um, I've reasoned my way to that. And frankly, if, if I couldn't reason my way to do it, to it, I wouldn't believe it. I'm kind of a, I don't know, I don't, I don't say I'm too rationalistic, but even within my spiritual life, because, I mean, religions or spiritual paths tend to take on all these accretions, like, like certain kinds of mythology or certain kinds of superstition. They just kind of, like barnacles, fasten themselves on whales. They just kind of seem to fasten themselves sometimes on spiritual movements. So I, I really tried to get rid of all those barnacles and really stick to the strict spiritual skies. That's why I began this practice. I wasn't like, I was a college student, I was lonely, and the Hare Krishna devotees were very nice to me, and I, you know they became my friends. No, actually, actually I had lots of friends. <laughs> I wasn't looking for more friends. And I, had, I was very happy. I mean, I wasn't miserable, and they fed me. I mean, I was actually happy. 
But I did want knowledge. I was really after knowledge. I was really, I really want, I wanted to understand who am I? Where do I come from? What is ultimately real? What is ultimately the purpose of my life? And, and so somehow or other, I, I was blessed with this opportunity. And here I am now, oh my God, 51 years later. I've been doing this 51 years. Please don't try to commit me. Anyway, I, I've been doing this for 51 years and it just keeps getting better. I'm actually happier every day. So I feel like I'm doing a commercial for something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so at this point, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to uh, take a shot at your questions. Right, right. Yeah, it's a great question. Really good question. Um, so in order for something to be self-evident, does it have to be self-evident only you, other people? Is there a, let's say, a social requirement in this epistemology of self-evident? Um, it is logically possible that you're the only person on earth that, act, that understands something really important. They used to have Twilight Zone episodes like that. So, um, oops. So it, it's not impossible. I would say it's very unlikely. Because, for one thing, there are a lot of good people in the world. Probably not enough, but there are a lot of good people in the world and a lot of very sincere people. And if I can use that word... Sounds a little archaic, but I think it's still a good word. There are a lot of pious people in the world. By the way, the word piety comes from a Latin word, which means dutiful. That's just doing the right thing, because it is the right thing. So, so therefore, I have personal experience, to my satisfaction, that there are many, many good people around the world who are kind of being victimized by the present idiocy of governments and all kinds of things going on. There are many good people, there are many sincere people, and therefore, the idea that I would discover something, which, let's say, I discovered it because of my sincerity. Because if there's some, I'm a person, I'm a conscious person, and I'm quite sure there's, a, there's, conscious, there's personal consciousness on the other end, because this universe is extremely personal. It's a universe of art. For example, maybe you've seen this, you know, if you look at, you search for, uh, highly magnified pictures of sand grains. They're like jewels. All different colors, all different shapes. I mean, it's... I'm dating myself here if I say, you know, it's really psychedelic. But it's... But actually, if you look at highly magnified pictures of sand grains, it's like... It's fantastic art. And, you know, in the, in the, in the original Star Wars movie, there was that bar scene with all these, like, you know... That's nothing compared to entomology, like the study of insects. If you study like magnified pictures of insects, it's like it leaves the Star Wars bar scene way in the dust. I mean, you'd think that, you know, the creator of the universe was on LSD or something. Because it's just, I mean, it's just fantastic. If you look at snowflakes, if you look at water crystals, if you look anywhere... Anywhere you look in the universe, if you look deep enough, for example, uh, uh, 
crickets, you know, they rub their legs together and make that sound that you love when you're camping out, so that you, you know, you can't sleep at night. And so what they've done is, they, some people have compared the ratio of a cricket life to a human life, and by that same ratio, slowed down the cricket sound, and it actually sounds like Gregorian chants. Like, like, you know, early Renaissance sacred music. And so everywhere you look in this universe, you find art, among other things. You find, so, so where is this all coming from? Why is it that virtue really is its own reward? That all the studies show that good people are happier than bad people. And by good, I mean people who consciously try to help other people not harm them or exploit them. And so if you just study the way the universe functions, virtue is rewarded. There's fantastic art everywhere. That the more species evolve, the more complex their consciousness is, the more personal they are the more personal they are. And, and so if you just extend this trajectory, that the higher the consciousness is, the more personal it is. Obviously, this is leading to infinite consciousness, which is infinitely personal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's some unfortunate tendency in history that some people think they're too intellectual to accept a personal God. And you find this in all the world religions. I mean, you talk about the Mutazila philosophers in the, in the Muslim court of Baghdad. You can talk about certain Jewish intellectuals, you know, Meister Eckhart, different kinds of Christian mystic. I mean, so, and of course not all of them. Many of them were personal, but, so the idea that, um, so let's say if this, getting back to your question. So if it's the case, well, how did that, that famous Lord Jagger in Bleak House by Charles Dickens, where the, the, the crafty lawyer says, put the case that, in other words, suppose that, put the case that. So imagine that there is some type of personal reality. His consciousness is personal. As the great American psychologist William James said, we have absolutely no experience of consciousness that doesn't belong to someone. So the very notion of impersonal consciousness is just someone, I don't know, too much time on their hands. So imagine that there is some ultimate, infinite, personal consciousness, and you also are ultimately personal. And therefore, and as persons, you tend to give your precious time or attention more to people who treat you in a very personal way and not to people who don't treat you in a personal way. And so if all these things are true, and, and you could say universally true, and there are many good people in the world, which there are, all over the world, all over the world, because I've traveled a lot, and everywhere you go, there's just, you find a lot of really good people who are just, you know, if they had the chance, would be better. And so if that's the case, the notion that I'm the only person who that infinite personal consciousness somehow found worthy of communicating with, I would say that sounds more like narcissism than philosophy. Of course, narcissism does seem to be the uh, great philosophy of our age. So, so therefore, if I believe something and I couldn't find a single human being on earth 
who, to whom it sounded right, that sounds right, uh, I think I really have a bit of self-doubt. But, but in my own life, that hasn't been the case. I found that, you know, to the extent that I can reasonably explain what I believe to be true, that everywhere I go in the world, I find many good people who, to whom it's also reasonable, not because I'm saying it, but because it is reasonable. <laughs> so, any, any other question? If I can't answer it, I get dunked in a barrel of water. Yes? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, could you come closer also because this is, uh, this is Krishna House has got talent. Yes. <laughs> so, this goes off of Jenny's point. Yes. This time I was taking a class in philosophy and I had proposed a possible way of showing how the bhakti practice is really, um, I don't know, like trying to give some empirical validity to the bhakti practice and the, the effects that it has. And when I brought up a different way of saying what you're saying is how self-evident truths can be, um, has a social aspect to it, my professor or my TA gave a certain example. He was saying, if you prove that many people like to eat bananas, that doesn't prove anything other than that many like to eat bananas. So saying if you prove that many people chant Hare Krishna and feel all these things, you don't prove anything else other than okay. preference. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was good. So thank you. This is this is like this is like home run derby. She just like lobbed it in, you know. So <laughs> thank you. I mean I've I've personally been hearing that nonsense for my whole life, as I'm sure you have, that, you know, like, for example, most of the human beings that ever lived believe there's some kind of deity. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, actually, that's nonsense. And I'll explain why it's nonsense. And here, I'm, what I'm arguing for is not that it proves, you know, like, like in a mathematical sense, but it is extremely significant. Because if we say that, huge numbers of people believing something shows nothing, then we are <clears throat> actually proposing a type of radical skepticism. A type of radical skepticism in which human testimony in general is meaningless. It means nothing. So, for example, I would say to the, the uh, in response to, to what I would call the great banana analogy, <laughs> that... Um, That, for example, uh, the overwhelming majority, I mean, almost all human beings believe that there's a real physical world outside of our minds. There's a, there's a philosophy which, if you take to it, you may uh, end up institutionalized, but it is called solipsism, which is the belief that, um, you know, all I can ever really know is the contents of my own mind. So, if human testimony is meaningless, like let's say a bunch of people like bananas, but that shows nothing, then why should the human testimony on the reality of the world mean something? 
Or, for example, let's say most Americans believe that people should not be uh, subjected to violence or, in, or other forms of injustice based on their body type. And obviously some people don't really believe that so strongly, unfortunately. I mean, you know, there are monsters among us. And so, does that, then, then, then that's, you know, why should that mean anything? What if we say, for example, that, that let's say 75%, just throw out a number, it's roughly, let's say 75% of Americans believe in some type of personal power in the universe, at a, you know, something like a god or something. What if only 75% of Americans believe that uh, it's important to give people of all body types equal justice? So here we have the same number. So as, you know, as the saying goes, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so if 75% means nothing, which I believe, then 75% of Americans believing that people of all body types uh, should have equal justice is equally meaningless. And in other words, and, and that conclusion, I think, would be dangerously wrong. It's not like benignly wrong, like, hey, I thought there were, you know, three big oak trees next to the Krishna house, but actually there's only two or something. I mean, you know, something like that, a mistake like that, it's like, who cares? And so d d does your TA get to decide, like, what's the magic number? If you get 75% of people think, maybe you need 83%. Do you also need empirical evidence? What if, for example, belief in democracy is actually declining? For one reason, because the governments are so bad. So belief in the, you know, that, that it's obvious. It's not even a discussion, of course, democracy is the best system. That's actually declining. So do the people that uphold the view that, yes, we should be free, we should, you know, have these or those rights, is that also meaningless? So does your TA get to choose, first of all, the number, what's the percentage, and secondly, what issues should be numerically adjudicated in terms of their truth value. Now, one thing we know, let's say we find that a certain percentage of the people like bananas. I'm going to go with the banana analogy. Let's say it, let's say it turns out that bananas are healthy. They have potassium and whatever. That's about all I know about bananas. Another... <laughs> Anyway. So, let's say bananas in general are healthy. And so let's say you do a study to find out which people like bananas. What if it turns out that people like, that like bananas tend to be people that are health conscious, tend to be people who are sort of, you know, to, quote, to use the Gita system, in the mode of goodness. In other words, some people are sort of inclined toward virtue. They're compassionate toward other creatures. They, um, they tend to like foods that are healthy. They tend to cultivate wisdom. They see real value in wisdom. Other people only want to make money. They want to, you know, get intoxicated in some way. They'd rather, you know, 
eat unhealthy food because they're just not going to worry about it because, you know, science will take care of that by the time, you know, I, I get the disease. So there are different kinds of people. What if it turns out people like bananas are people that tend to value health, value compassion, value wisdom, and bananas taste good to those people. People that tend to be more lucid. So again, there are nutritional issues, there are ethical issues, political issues, and there are different percentages. So the TA's remark seems like uh, it's not the result of anything like serious thinking. It's just a little clever soundbite in his view that someone he heard somewhere and he's kind of like recycling what he believes is a clever soundbite. And that's really unfortunate. Is that a philosophy class? Yeah, because obviously that person still is, you know, hopefully someday will become philosophical. So, um, again, you know, it, it, it's the larger issue of what is the value of human testimony? In what areas? To what extent? When do percentages matter? When do they not matter? When do they... It's a very serious issue, which the TA's remark just uh, obviously doesn't even begin to address. Sure. Happy to... It's a good question. I'll never, I'll never look at bananas the same again. <laughs> so, any any other question? Yes, please. Hey, how how are you? Here, this is your chance. Krishna House got talent. Okay, see if, see if you can get the red buzzer. By, by dimension. Yes. Yes. Yeah, very good. Uh, first of all, recognizing that you yourself are a metaphysical being. You know, isn't it amazing? There are actually some people in the world that dedicate their lives arguing against their own survival. I mean, I mean, there's something really sick about that because if, if we are in some sense of the term eternal, spiritual, if, which we actually are, obviously. Uh, I mean, we obviously are because, I mean, you could not be your body even if you wanted to be. Because Heraclitus, you know, honk if you like Heraclitus. Heraclitus was a pre-Socratic philosopher about... 24, 2,500 years ago. <laughs> Please laugh at my jokes. It really makes me feel bad. So, <laughs> so Heraclitus is famous for having said that, uh, or Aristotle thinks he said, that you can't step in the same river twice. Actually, Heraclitus at the time of Buddhism, I mean, the, the real voidism of Buddhism is not that nothing exists. That's not what they meant. They meant that um, there's no fixed object which is always itself. For example, take uh, your body. Uh, actually, technically, you have a different body now than you did 
when this program began because you've been breathing and, you know, breathing out carbon dioxide, and, and so certain elements within your body have been expelled, certain new things have come in, you're digesting your food, assuming you ate today, and if you are interested in Hare Krishna, you definitely ate today uh, multiple times. And so, there's one thing we can do, we can eat. So, so therefore, we are, um, I mean, the body is technically not the same body. And so that's what he meant. I mean, we know the sense in which it is the same body. It's still legally you and all that. But the body's constantly in flux. And every so many years, the, the number I've heard is every seven years, you actually reincarnate. You know Spanish or Latin, carne, flesh. So reincarnation just means reinfleshment. And, um, and so therefore, like, like let's say, for example... Uh, you know, two people, they're kind of admiring each other from a distance, they're both getting a crush on each other, and finally they hold hands or something, and it's like that magic moment. And let's say they're separated for two weeks, and they come back and hold hands again. They're actually different hands, because <laughs> your skin... Because your skin... Your skin is reproduced every two weeks. So it's, you know, it's a brand new magic moment because, because your skin is actually reproduced. So, and yet we have continuous personal identity because, for example, I could tell you, why don't we just talk for a few hours about my childhood, right? Everyone will start running away. No, but it's, when I was, I mean, we all remember when we were little children. We all remember this. And you know it was you. Obviously, your body is complete. It's not, it's not that your baby body stretched into your adult body. It's a different body. It's a different body. And so we've reincarnated. I mean, divide your age by seven, and that's how many times you've already reincarnated. So reincarnation is not an issue. I mean, obviously, we reincarnate. The issue is, does it continue after death? And Krishna says, yes. But in any case, you know, however someone, whatever someone thinks about continuing after death, the point is, you cannot be your body. It's just, it's just not available to you as a rational option. You cannot be your body. And so this whole mirror, mirror on the wall thing is a distraction. So, yeah, so we're not the body. And so what we know we are, even if you're not a spiritualist, even if you haven't, you know, had that one last Krishna lunch that pushes you over the line into a believer. So what, what we do know, what we do know as a fact is that I'm not the body. I am a continuous personal consciousness. And we know that for a fact. Because... Your experience of yourself as a de at the deepest level is the foundation of everything else you think you know. That's what Descartes said in the uh, meditations, you know, cogito ergo sum. Descartes was, he did something very radical in this time. In fact, it was so radical, he had to write this whole big introduction praising to the skies the faculty at the Sorbonne because it was a heavy, heavy church university and if they didn't like what you wrote, they could ruin your whole, whole day by burning you at the stake. And so it's funny, if you read the introduction to Descartes' meditations, he's going out of his way, like, 
we all know that all we need to know is what you guys say, what the church tells us. And But there are actually some people who are so stupid, they don't believe everything you say, and therefore for them, I'm doing philosophy. I mean, you know, if I had to choose between sort of obsequious praise or being burned at the stake, I'd go with obsequious praise. So, so anyway, but what Descartes says is he doubts everything, and then he says, is there something I can't rationally doubt? Is there something that it would be just irrational, foolish to doubt? And he decides that, yes, there is. I can't doubt that I exist. And he said, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I exist. And so, in the 1600s, when Descartes was operating, there was another guy in England named Sir Francis Bacon. And um, he was kind of rediscovering the empirical method. He was one of the big names in the sort of revival or uh, improving of the empirical method. And so Bacon was saying, let's look for objective truth out in the physical world. But Descartes was saying, no. Because whatever you see out in the physical world, you see it because you're conscious. And therefore, the first thing you need to do is look at the instrument that is looking at everything else. In other words, look at your own consciousness. The fact that you are a conscious person. And actually, that you know for a fact that you're a conscious, an individual, personal consciousness. And you know that before and beyond you know anything else. And so that's what you actually know about yourself. That your individual personal consciousness and that you're not the body. And, if, and that should be enough to get you started on the spiritual path. Because, I mean, don't you want to know why that's the case? How you came to be an individual personal consciousness? What the heck are you doing in a physical body if you're not the body? Like, what are you doing there? And... So obviously these are the things we should be thinking about. And of course that leads to the Krishna house. So, anything else? Well, thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. I mean, you guys, you know, young people, you're really the future hope for the world. Because, um, you know, the more sincere, intelligent young people that can somehow understand all these things, the more hope there is for this planet. So thank you very much. Thank you.